Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the BC budget unveiled yesterday by Finance Minister Katrina Conroy. This is a big spending budget, billions of dollars in new spending here. That $400 a year renter rebate is in there six years after it was promised. It's a big borrowing budget, too. There's lots of red ink here. The deficit this year, $4.2 billion, more than $10 billion in deficits over the next three years. We've got a terrific panel standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen here to the finance minister. Here's Katrina Conroy. The largest infrastructure investment in our province's history. If you're looking for good family-supporting work, British Columbia is the place to be. We're creating jobs by building hospitals from Lionsgate to Stewart Lake, by building schools in fast-growing areas, by building a fast, reliable transit network, including the Broadway subway and the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain, and by building homes for generations of British Columbians. Okay, let's discuss now. we got both sides of it for you. Andrew Mercier, NDP MLA for Langley, Minister of State for Workforce Development. Very pleased to welcome him back. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Peter Millibar on the line. Peter's the Liberal MLA, Kamloops North Thompson. Peter, thank you. Always a pleasure. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Andrew, let me go to you first. What is the main message here that you want British Columbians to know about this budget? Well, look, Mike, I think what this budget shows is that David Eby and our government are in your corner, right? Like the costs are going up. I mean, you, you see that at the pump. You see that in the grocery store. And right now, in a world of global inflation, you've got a government that's focused on putting money back into the pockets of British Columbia and uh, British Columbians. And I think you just look at some of the key measures we've taken. The BC Family Benefit. 75% of families are eligible for the BC Family Benefit. That's going to go up by 10% per month for folks starting in July 2023. And if you're a single parent, there's as much as a $500, annual, a $500 annual top up on top of that. The renter's tax credit you talked about is going yeah. to impact 80% of renters. And I think, importantly, you know, the carbon tax is going up across the country. The BC Climate Action Tax Credit is going to increase along with the, with the carbon tax, and that's going to increase annually. So, for instance, last year, a two-parent family that received the full BC Climate Action Tax Credit could have received up to $500. Uh, $500. As of July, that same family could receive 900 Okay, let's go to Peter Millibar for the Liberals. Peter, your thoughts? Well, well, a couple things. Uh, the climate action tax credit has always been in place, and every time carbon tax goes up, it gets adjusted upwards as well. Uh, the key is really the, the income thresholds uh, uh, that trigger it and, and how much you receive at each income threshold. And that's really the key with all of the measures just talked about. Uh, for the government to say 80% of the renters out there are going to receive uh, this renter's rebate that's been six years in the making, uh, when uh, the cutoff to be at $400, the maximum, is $60,000 or less for the household income, not for the individual, um, is laughable in the extreme, especially when it zeroes out at $80,000 household income. The average uh, apartment in Vancouver right now and many other parts of the province under this government's watch, you now need to earn $100,000 a year just to be able to afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment. And, and the last yeah. piece on that is... You don't even get it until next year's when you file your income taxes. So 
uh, it's another year of wait. And so I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed by that. But okay, Andrew. Yeah, let me let me go to Andrew. Let me go to Andrew Mercier on that point there, though, just to follow up on that on the renters rebate because it's six years it took for this government to deliver on this. But you know, four hundred bucks. I mean, that gets you what maybe maybe a week's worth of groceries these days. How is this going to make a, a difference to anybody? Well, Andrew, first thing, uh, yeah, thank you, Mike. I think the first thing is that most people, and we know a lot of people, are one paycheck away um, from not making payment of their bills. So everything helps. Uh, And that what this is, is this is part of a broad suite of measures, right? If you're not just looking at the renter's tax credit in isolation, we're also looking at increases in the climate action tax credit, the BC family tax credit. We're providing free contraception, uh, free contraception. We're putting money back into the pockets um, of British Columbians. And I would just uh, I would just answer something Mr. Millibar said there about how the climate action tax credit was always there. When Kevin Falcon and the BC Liberals were in government, they claimed that the uh, carbon tax was revenue neutral. But what they actually did was put a tax on people at the pump and then give that money back to corporations through tax cuts to corporations. What we're doing is we're making sure that money goes back into the pockets of British Columbians. Peter, what do you yeah. say to that? Well, that, once again, it's, it's revisionist history at its finest. It's actually incorrect. Uh, where does Mr. Mercy think the carbon uh, climate action tax credit was created? It was created when the carbon tax first came in, that the NDP... Uh, were against and campaigned against because we had it revenue neutral. It wasn't tax breaks uh, solely to businesses, uh, as the NDP will have you uh, believe. We had a very clear accounting for it year after year after year. Instead, what this government has done, rolled it into general revenue. Uh, they play a shell game with the, with the carbon tax. And as it climbs to $170 a ton, which will collect 8 to $10 billion a year, I think the public deserves a little bit more accountability as okay. to where those dollars are actually going or not. Andrew Mercier, let me ask you about this, the deficit in this budget and the deficits going forward. You guys have gone from, what, a five, over a $5 billion surplus, $5.7 billion surplus, to a $4.2 billion deficit, and billions more in deficits going forward in the, in the outlying years. Why, why this... Uh, this this level of spending. I listened to the finance minister yesterday saying, "Oh, the economy is doing really well." If that's true, why are you racking up these huge deficits? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question, Mike. And before I answer that, I just want to respond to something that uh, that Peter said there about how the carbon tax was revenue neutral under the BC Liberals. The carbon tax was never revenue neutral under the BC Liberals, and even Jordan Bateman, a prominent BC Liberal, and uh, when he was at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in 2012 said it was ridiculous to call the carbon tax revenue neutral um, because the the access to the corresponding tax breaks for drivers just wasn't there in the same way it is now um, under us. To answer your question on the deficits, the past year, the past few years have been unusual years. Uh, really, the surplus has to do with um, calculation of taxation from about a year ago that's given from the CRA. There's a lag in terms of the receipt of uh, the receipt of tax revenue, but we need to make sure right now, while people are struggling, while inflation is going up, that we've got their backs and that we're helping them, um, and that we're putting money back into the pockets of British Columbia, okay. and we're investing in the services that they need. We have a record-breaking investment in capital infrastructure in British Columbia, and a record-breaking investment in healthcare and in the healthcare workforce. That is absolutely needed right now. And I would just I would just say, 
you know, and we're looking at this with a note of caution, the deficit is projected to decline over the next several years. Peter Millibar, what do you say to that? Well, results are what really matters. And we've heard record this, record that for the last seven budgets introduced by this government. The reality is uh, that in this year's capital plan, the government has to disclose everything uh, of a capital project that's $50 million or more. There's only four new projects in that plan, the most expensive of which is $225 million. The rest that they're talking about in this $37 billion is all program uh, projects that have been started years ago. And 21 of those in this year's budget are now either delayed or over a budget or a combination of both. That is the problem here is the handling of the money, the results we're seeing um, just doesn't match. The couch and hospital alone went from a $600 million project to $1.4 billion uh, to build the same hospital. These people just simply don't know how to manage projects and programs and services, hey. and they certainly don't want to be held to any deliverable target to, to decide whether or not uh, they're actually achieving success or not. Hey, Peter, let me ask you this real quickly before in the minutes, couple of minutes we got left here. Are taxes too high in British Columbia? Like if the Liberals are in power now and they brought in a budget yesterday, would there be tax cuts in there? Well, I, I think we have to be careful with that. I mean, obviously, this government has built in a lot of systemic uh, issues that, that are going to need to be paid. They've added $4.2 billion this year alone to the existing payroll uh, to provide the same services that we're currently receiving within the public sector. So there's a lot of bills that are still going to need to be paid. The, the real question is, um, where can you most effectively spend the money? Where can you actually get results that you're willing to stand behind? Um, you know, the, the doctor's agreement. Okay, that's great. We all agree we needed a new doctor's agreement. What's the end goal here? Is it that we have uh, only half a million people without a family doctor after five years instead of the current million? Um, what's the turnaround time okay. to try to get access to, to mental health and addictions treatment? Is it a week or is it the current 29 days? We don't know because they removed any measurable out of this budget of what they're trying to achieve with okay. anything that they've talking about. Andrew Mercier, go ahead. You have yeah, a minute here. I would say that, you know, the end goal of the New Deal for family doctors is to attract and incent as many physicians as we can into family practice for British Columbia. You know, there was a program in 2013 when Kevin, Fina, uh, when Kevin Falcon was uh, minister in the government. GP for me promised everyone a family doctor, didn't deliver. What we're doing here is we're spending a billion dollars in this budget on a new compensation model that will bring doctors to this province. And we're expanding, we're expanding training seats for doctors. Uh, at UBC Medical School and creating a brand new medical school at SFU in Surrey. So these are these are huge, complex pieces uh, that require time and are and are forefront of this budget and what we're doing to make sure that we're there for British Columbians so they have the health care okay. that they need and you know they have the help with costs. All right, no I want to thank if it's a successful program or not. All right. I want to thank both of you for a really good discussion once again. I appreciate it a lot. Peter Millibar, Liberal MLA. Andrew Mercier, NDP MLA. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time today. Let's keep talking about this B.C. budget right now. And here's an interesting analysis. Is this budget fair to all generations? If you do a breakdown on the spending by age demographics, do younger British Columbians get the short end of the stick when it comes to priorities and spending in this budget? What about those big deficits? Man, oh, man, you talk about the red ink here. $4 billion-plus deficit this year. $10 billion in deficit. 
deficits in the years going forward here. That puts a burden on younger people as well. That has often been called a tax hike on future generations when they get stuck with that accumulated debt. Of course, housing, always a big issue in British Columbia, and there were housing components in this budget yesterday. Got Paul Kershaw standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to the finance minister here on housing. Here's Katrina Conroy. Budget 2023 includes a bold housing action plan with more than $4 billion in new operating and capital investments to build on the work done so far. And it will take new steps to build and unlock more homes for middle-class families, for Indigenous peoples, and for renters and those with the greatest needs. We're also creating more student housing spaces throughout BC to help ease pressure on local markets. We're also increasing housing and services near public transit hubs around the province. And we're adding hundreds more units of complex care housing. Okay, will this help young people trying to break into an unaffordable housing market? Let's discuss it now with Paul Kershaw, UBC professor, founder of Generation Squeeze. And I'm very pleased to welcome Paul back to the show. Paul, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Okay, Paul, let's start with this sort of breakdown of the budget by age demographics. You've done some interesting analysis on this, like the spending, where does it get target, which age groups benefit the most? Talk talk to me about that. Yeah, great question. And so a lot of your conversation so far today has focused, and appropriately so, on the deficits that have been projected. And when we add up the deficits over the next three years, that's going to add $2,500 of additional debt per person under the age of 45. And so you're like, okay, maybe that's okay if we're investing a bunch more, if we're running these deficits in order to invest in things that really matter for a younger demographic. But when you break the new spending down, it becomes clear that British Columbians over the age of 65 are going to receive $3,100 of additional investment, whereas younger uh, British Columbians will only receive 1300 Put differently, older folks are getting two and a half times more spending from this budget uh, than our younger British Columbians, all the while we're adding deficits that are driving you know, further debt costs onto younger folks. That is a significant generational tension and does beg the question, are we collecting enough revenue to do the things that an older demographic wants right now? And are they contributing fairly? Okay, that's a very interesting analysis. So let me ask you how you how you come to these numbers and the, and the bottom line there. When you talk about the spending per capita on, let's say, British Columbians who are senior citizens, sixty five plus and older, significant difference there from the younger younger British Columbians as you described. Is that like mostly like healthcare spending because people who are older British Columbians are obviously consuming more healthcare services? You can't blame them for that. No, no, you can't blame them for that. You're right that it, medical care is the driving factor. There's data yeah. from Stats Can that allows us to look at who uses what services. And so right now in BC, uh, those over 65 are 20% of the population, but they use 46% of our medical care services. You're right, you can't blame them for that. It's a reality of becoming older, a, a biological frailty that is part of the human experience and will need more care. But what we can talk about is why have we never had a conversation with our older demographic about did you pay enough during your working lives in taxes to cover the cost of medical care you now want to use? And the answer to that is no. That's a hard truth to share. But the answer to that is no. And, you know, I've just heard a a, a listener at the end of your last half hour say, oh, you know, taxes are killing us. Um, But that person is likely going to be wanting to draw because he's mentioned he's on OAS. So he's drawing on OAS taxes and he's wanting to use medical care, I suspect, at a certain point. And those things cost money. And right now we're pushing the bills for that 
to a younger demographic and then crowding out investment in the housing, childcare well, that they like. Well, so you're saying to older British Columbians uh, who paid taxes all their lives, all their working lives, they didn't pay enough taxes? Really? Yeah, but, so when baby boomers came of age, there were seven workers for every retiree. And that resulted in their paying about 5% of their taxes towards the medical care for retirees. Today, there are fewer than four workers for every retiree. And without substantial immigration, soon there will be fewer than three. And already we have a younger demographic contributing 10% of their taxes, twice as much as baby boomers, towards the medical care of the aging population. Now, that'd be great if the younger demographic was doing so fabulously. But we know they're the people that have been harmed by higher home prices, whereas those who got in the housing market some time ago have been benefiting. They're the folks that have seen their earnings flatline compared to people in the past. They're the ones starting with more student debt and paying more to go to school for the privilege to land jobs that pay less and less often have extended health care and benefits and pensions. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that because I, I do feel for younger people if they're starting out, maybe they got a young family trying to break into a housing market and they're being told, you know, just stop drinking so many lattes and you know, cut back a little bit and you'll be able to afford a down payment. Well, I mean, you take a look at the housing costs and how much it consumes a percentage of your annual income to afford a mortgage. I mean, it's just gone off the charts, right? I mean, it's, it is it is tough. It is unfair in many ways for younger people. So let me ask you about that. So let's talk about yeah. younger people, and you stand up for them all the time. So what is in this budget for younger British Columbians? What, what about child care? I mean, I hear the government patting themselves on the back all the time about, about child care spending. So the NDP government deserves credit for leading on $10-a-day child care, especially some years ago. Interestingly, in this budget... Uh, one of the reasons that spending doesn't grow more per younger person is that the this budget doesn't actually inject more provincial dollars to like really rapidly ramp up the money we have available to make $10 a day childcare available to more people and to attract the professionals that we need to uh, grow those spaces. So that's, I think, a little bit of a warning sign. And we, you were talking earlier with, uh, with two MLAs who were saying we needed more money to pay family physicians so that we would attract them and retain them. Well, that, right. that's costing 150 grand in gross costs per family physician. You know, we're not even talking about whether or not we'll find a few thousands of dollars to improve the uh, remuneration for childcare workers who typically get paid little more than parking lot attendants. Okay, let's talk about housing, which is another one that's right in your wheelhouse here, Paul, for for younger demographics. So you've come up with a lot of ideas for on housing. What did you see in this budget yesterday for housing? Well, insofar as a younger demographic is increasingly locked out of home ownership, because remember, you know, when Boomer started, it took five years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment. To be flash forward to today, it now takes 22 years. That's locking right. so many more people out of home ownership. So rental becomes important. Groups like the BC Nonprofit Housing Association and the Cooperative Housing Federation of BC would say that the 500 million they've recently received to protect existing affordable rental housing stock is one of the most significant investments in their sector ever. So that's positive. Um, we did hear about the $4.2 billion in additional money to try and grow more affordable spaces. Some of that is going to be used to double the number of Indigenous housing uh, units, and that's actually meeting the exact request made by Indigenous housing stakeholders. For those who are most marginalized, we have to celebrate that after 16 years, we actually increased the shelter allowance from $375 right. a month to 500 It's still low, but that's a big change compared to previous policy, and and I want to applaud the provincial government for doing that. But here's where I will say they really dropped the ball. And it's actually in what they said in the budget speech. 
and I would encourage you to play this over today if you have a chance. The finance minister said that the housing system has been working well for bankers, investors, and speculators, but badly for everyday British Columbians. And I just think that's wildly inaccurate. I'm a homeowner in BC who's been a homeowner for over 18 years, and I've been made wealthy. Well, I've been sleeping, watching TV, and cooking in my home because skyrocketing home prices have increased my wealth. That is actually a common experience because the majority of British Columbians are homeowners, many of whom have been doing so for some time. And if we can't have this government, led by a premier who's one of the boldest housing ministers that we've seen in some time, actually be honest that high and rising home prices have benefited many of us, we are never going to solve the unaffordability problem and we won't address the housing wealth inequality. Okay, so therefore you return to your argument that for people who are sitting on a mountain of equity like yourself, you've been very upfront about the, the value of your own home. How much is your house worth, do you figure? BC assessment tells <clears> me it's near $2.4 million now. $2.4 million. Oh, million. my goodness. Okay. I have about so, a million into it, so that's a lot of wealth windfall for me. Right. Okay, so you're not alone. There are people who are fortunate enough to own a home. Um, yeah, they're sitting on, on, on a lot of equity. Now, so you therefore make the argument that that should be taxed, right? Like if someone's sitting on... On a mountain of a, a valuable property, they might not have a lot of high income as as a as a senior citizen or a pensioner, but they're living in a house they own. They should what? They should pay. Yeah, you definitely had me on. And today we're talking about the budget. You won't see that announcement in this budget. That's my right. position of this particular government. I, you know, and I'd be happy to push them. I think they should do more. I'm happy to debate that with you at any time you like. And you've brought me on many times. I think I get lots of angry phone callers when I do. But here's the yeah. fact. <laughs> no one can deny that high and rising home prices have benefited some of us. In fact, many of us. And if we can't actually have that honest conversation, then we can't ask those of us who have benefited to say, how might we be able to lean into figuring out what the heck the solution is? You may not like my tax proposal. Fine. But then what are the other ways that those of us who have benefited can contribute to addressing the harm that we are causing many of the people we love who are younger of us and newcomers of any age, especially as we're bringing many more immigrants into the province than in the past because they, we want the workers to pay for the uh, medical care and old age security that our aging population needs. And they're going to get creamed in our housing market, not to mention add demand that's going to drive up costs for younger folks. Okay. Paul, it's always great to get your point of view on it. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Have a great day. Let's talk about driving in the snow in Vancouver. Do Vancouver drivers get a bad rap here when it comes to driving in the ice and snow? The rest of Canada, including the rest of British Columbia to a degree as well, roll their eyes here. Every time we get a dusting of snow in Vancouver, people kind of lose their minds. Do people know how to drive in the ice and snow here? Are Vancouver drivers really bad drivers in the snow compared to the rest of the country? Got Grant Gottkatru standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Grace Key. By daybreak, it was a traffic mess in some spots. Multiple stalled vehicles on the causeway made for major delays across the Lionsgate Bridge. Northbound traffic was closed for most of the morning. For people heading downtown, it was a long wait. Hour and a half so far. Oh, it was brutal. Um, I came from Capilano Mall, and it took me almost an hour just to get to Lionsgate Bridge. In Coquitlam's Westwood Plateau, it was a challenge for some vehicles to get up the hill, and going down was just as tricky. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't stop coming down the hill, and I just put it into the curb, and I've been sitting here ever since. 
Okay, so you're coming down the hill. You're losing control. You're slipping and sliding now. Turn it into the curb. What else are you going to do? I mean, those hills are tough, right? I mean, maybe it's easy for people in Saskatchewan to say, oh, these drivers in Vancouver are terrible. Well, you know, you're driving in the flatlands there. What about driving up and down these hills? I've also heard the theory that the snow is different in B.C. Here we got the wetter, heavier, slushier snow compared maybe to lighter, drier snow in the prairies. Does that make a difference? Does that make it harder to drive in the snow and ice here in B.C. on the coast? Anyway, let's discuss it now with my guest, Grant Gottgetru. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, thanks for coming on again. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Okay, so Grant, over your many years as a traffic police officer, I'm sure you saw a lot of fender benders in the snow. Do people know how to drive properly in the snow and ice? Uh, generally, I would I would give a, a C average to the uh, on a hole in the lower mainland. Okay, a C average. Why would you give that give that grade? There are some people. I think the most, the majority of it, the, yeah, they, they they drive well in the snow. It, it, it's the it's the boneheads that that um, aren't that aren't prepared for it. I, you know, I, I left the Lower Mainland just on Sunday to come home here in the Okanagan, and as soon as I got on, up on Highway One at one seven six out to Abbotsford, I mean, this is a Sunday morning. And there was already three cars off the road with their four-way flashers on in the ditch. And I'm just like, what are you people doing? But the the snow was starting to get a little bit heavy and it started to get wet, right? And yep. and I really felt it. I even felt it in my 4 by 4 where it was really starting to pull me around. So I had to really slow down. So it the, the snow does get more treacherous once it starts to uh, get a little bit more wet versus dry. But the, the vast majority uh, of people, um, it, it, they, 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 they don't get it. They really don't. There's, there's, and, and unfortunately, when they crash, they create havoc for everyone else around them. One of the problems, I guess, is drivers who have inappropriate tires on their vehicles. Maybe they're driving like summer vehicles or they're dri- driving older bald tires or they're driving the, these so-called all-weather all tires that are not really winter tires or all season tires talk to me a little bit about that like do you think people some people just they don't have the right tires in their vehicles and maybe they're not aware of there are some actually winter tire laws in parts of the province correct i think uh there's i think there's a a large amount that are ignorant to uh to their own tires they don't pay attention to them I mean, how many people pay attention to when the little low air pressure comes on on their dashboard, right? They probably drive around for extended periods of time with one tire low because they're just too lazy to get out and fill it up. Uh, I think that it's high time because I know ICBC is probably fed up with uh, all the collisions that happen during, you know, dustings of snow and then all of our rates go up. I think it's high time that... uh, during uh, specific times of the year, just like up on the Coquihalla between April and, or sorry, between what? What is it? October and April or something? You have uh-huh. to have tires that are rated with a snowflake on them, even right. in the lower mainland. Okay, even in the lower mainland, do you think it should be required to have those winter rated tires, like you said, with the snowflake symbol on the side? 
Well, absolutely, because time and time again, we've all seen that a lot of the cities wait until there's, you know, uh, snow before they get out and start dealing with it. And by that time, you've got pandemonium all over the lower mainland. It, it, and it's, it's, it's almost biblical how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, I think it's high time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Having a, a snowflake uh, rated tire is, is, is not an issue. You know, and at the end of the day, it's like too bad. Driving is a, is a privilege. It's not a right. right. So okay. I, think, I think it's about high time that government stepped in and said, okay, enough. Okay, let's talk about the skill or lack thereof for people in Vancouver driving in the snow. So we talked earlier about whether Vancouver drivers get an unfair or bad rap because of the terrain that drivers must face here with a lot of hills in Metro. So, you know, you heard in that clip the driver saying, you know, I'm going down a hill and uh, it's out of control. I just turn turn my tires into the curb. What else am I going to do? So do you think that's legit? And also this argument that our snow is is worse snow than, say, the interior or the, or the prairies. It's wetter, slushier snow, and it's more difficult to drive in. Your thoughts? Well, the, the bigger problems predominantly happen when it's the, fir- it's the first bit of the snow that falls, so the first couple of inches that are all nice and dry like regular snow. And, and you just have people that aren't familiar with driving in the snow. They don't change their driving habits. They, they continue to drive too fast, too close to one another. Uh, they don't plan their stops or turns in advance. Uh, it's generally um, complacency because we don't get a lot of snow on the coast. But when we do, it's Armageddon, right? So, <laughs> um so people need to pay attention. But the, the reality is, once you've lost control, you've lost control. Okay. There's, let's, limited, there's let's, limited opportunity to recover. Let's say you're in that situation. Let's, let's say you're in a slide. Can you, can you, like, how do you deal with that? Are you, are you supposed to turn into the slide? Do you put the, you grab, pull the parking brake? Like, what are you supposed to do? Well, in this current era, I think you're supposed to post it on TikTok. Isn't that what most people do? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. First of all, don't jump on the brake because you're going to lock it up and you're going to start. The one thing I was always taught was put the vehicle in the, in the neutral right away because even when it's in drive, the wheels are still rotating. Yeah. Right. So put it in a neutral, try to steer into it, whatever's working. The, 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 but, but that's really something that you have to practice and be cognizant of yourself. I think most people do the same thing. They start to slide, they keep their foot on the brake, and they panic. Right. Because we just don't have uh, enough experience in the lower mainland yeah. dealing with winter driving conditions. Okay, but the Grant. one thing I will recommend is, you know, pop the vehicle in the neutral. At least that stops the tires from rotating. Let's go right to your phone calls here on... Uh, can you tell me who the first caller is there, Tim, please? Jennifer in Mission. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? Um, here's the reality. I, I drive for a living, so I'm on the road nine hours a day. And here's the reality. It doesn't matter if it's snowing. Drivers in this part of the world, and probably a lot of others, are just bad drivers. They don't leave room. They don't, they've obviously all failed, you know, grade 11 physics because they don't understand that, that uh, you can't stop a vehicle in two feet. So 
things like that should be uh, taught more. When I was a kid, my dad would take me down to the the shopping mall um, parking lots, and I, and we'd drive around in the snow if it we had a big dump of snow, and I'd get a feel for it, you know, so that you oh. know what you're doing when you get there. So it's not, but it's not just the snow, Mike. It's people just do not know how to drive in this town, and. I think more of that should be uh, taught when you go get your license or whatever. Um, yeah, it's just crazy out there. It's ridiculous. Jennifer, thank you for the call. Grant, what do you think? Oh, Jennifer, spot on. And, and I've mentioned to you more than once that uh, uh, it's too easy to get a driver's license in British Columbia. And another part of the problem with that is, of course, we have a lot of foreign drivers that, that settle in the lower mainland. And, uh, and they're not tested for their driving skill set. They come from other countries, and who knows what the standards are in some other countries to get a driver's license. But they just simply come here, and they, they patch over. They get their driver's license. Uh, they present their foreign driver's license. They get a BC driver's license without being road tested. Uh, and I saw that hmm. a lot when I was on the job. It was crazy, right? They didn't understand the, the rules, how to pull over and approach of emergency vehicles. So compounding that with how easy it is for Canadians in British Columbia to get a driver's license, um, you know, she's absolutely right. It's far too easy. Uh, okay, Doug in Surrey. Hi, Doug, go ahead. I uh, listened to the people that uh, years ago, man studs when they were in Toronto because they were chewing up the Don Valley parking lot and making a rut of road out of it. It was a major freeway. And I thought with all the technology they got in this day and age, they can't tell me that Goodyear and Michelin and people like that couldn't come up with some kind of Kevlar stud that they could put in. But you will never cure the airheads that they let loose on the road. You're right. They come from another country, and we got some here that they don't care about anybody. When I was riding bikes, you learned. The last thing you do is hit a brake. If you see something coming up, you try and steer around it. You're on two wheels. You're playing the odds against yourself anyway. But you got to learn how to steer around things. But if you have no grip, Kevlar okay. studs could do the trick. Okay, Doug, thank you. Okay, what about the tire quality? Like, uh, you know, I think you have to be careful, Grant, when you're buying tires because you're going to get these all all weather tires, all season tires. Do they have the snowflake symbol? Do they not? Do they have the mountain icon on the side? Do they? And it's tricky for the consumer to make a, a wise choice. Yes. Yes, I don't think, I think anyone who buys summer tires, I mean, do they even make those anymore? Um, all, you know, all seasons are fine. Um, all weather tires are just one step below snow tires. Right, um, yeah. That way you don't have to change them. If you, you, you can't, true winter tires, you have to take off when it starts warming up. Otherwise, the, 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 the uh, tread will disappear because of the heat. So Okay, uh, like I always think yeah. when they say all all season tires that's a very very misleading descriptor because it should be three season tires really yeah that that's yeah. actually uh, an excellent point because with your tier of tires you've got summer you've got all season you have all weather and then you have your winter tires kind of those four i mean there's studded and whatnot but generally for the consumer that goes to uh, a tire store it's going to be one of those four and my yeah. recommendation is get the all-weather tires. Let's go to Malcolm on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Malcolm. Go ahead. I lived in uh, 
the South Centre of Canada for 11 years, and I was there when they had the absolute snowmageddon where Mayor Lassman was begging for the Army to come in because they got so much snow in one period of time. They get all the snow anyway, but they got it in such a short period of time they couldn't handle it. I think your record, your your report card on Vancouver drivers is really accurate to see. Uh, when I was back there, I was driving tour bus, and when you said put it into neutral, I've been doing that for years because a driving instructor from McKinley Driving School, that tells you how old I am, uh, that's how he taught us. And I was learning to drive in the snow, and I went to school in, in West Vancouver at Hillside. We were at the top of the hill. Now, in defense of Toronto, they are, it's a very hilly city, too. So they have their issues with hills, not as bad as here, some think, but it's in other areas it is bad so i think it's the snow as well because i I know that when i was driving my car i seem to have better control when i was back and and even in montreal which is the actual snow capital of the major cities in the world okay so okay so the the issue about if you go into a slide to put your vehicle in neutral malcolm has that happened to you like have you gone into a slide and pop okay and what does that do like what is my bus i'm driving a 45 foot bus I'm starting to slide. I take, I put it, I just hit the pad, hit neutral. Because what you're doing is you're telling the engine and the drivetrain saying, hey, take a rest, let the brakes do the work. And you okay. slow, and then you take, you start to slow down. And you, as your guest said, your drivetrain isn't, is only got one purpose in mind, and that's to go forward. So you take okay. that drivetrain out and you start to slow down slowly. Thank you, Malcolm, for the call. Let's squeeze in one more. Steve in Coquitlam. Steve, you got 30 seconds here. I got you, Mike. How are you doing? I grew up in Toronto, lived in Winnipeg for three and a half years, Edmonton for two, and out here. The best drivers were in Winnipeg. I mean, they live in it. You know, they they just know what they're doing. Uh, Edmonton, my God, taking the QE um, north and south with that 60-yard uh, uh, ditch in the middle had tons of rollovers, a bunch of four-by-fours. My God. But, yeah, out here, I would give it actually a D, uh, the foreign <laughs> drivers. I mean, like, it's, um, like, they really don't know what they're, they don't know what they're doing in the snow and should be tested properly. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just, okay. uh, I'm pretty bad out here, Mike. Thank you for the call. Grant, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.